Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Notable. Hello and welcome to Notable. Hello. I'm Elizabeth Holker. I'm Stuart McConey. This is programme two of what we are now going to call series two, series having received two. an irate letter. <laughs> it was a tweet. Was it? From um, an English listener, yeah, who doesn't like the Americanization of podcast terminology. Okay. Well, all right, then at least for this programme, we're going to defer to that listener's wishes and call it this series two, and this is programme two, when which we... As we do in every notable, we talk to each other and we tell each other about interesting, unusual, uh, quirky, fascinating, thought-provoking stories from the entire history of music. That's right, it is. I thought you were slipping into American accent then. (laughs) Really? So we can speak, we can use English terms, but... Maybe we'll start doing it in American accents. Oh no! Did I did I slip into a transatlantic delivery? No, I think it, I think the I think the connection was slow and it was, sounded like a southern drawl, but it was just it was just a glitch with the internet. Well, rest assured, Elizabeth and dear listeners, that I'm not <laughs> slipping into a Simon Bates style transatlantic delivery for this um, uh, show. The second of the new series. Series one is all there. There's eight of them there. Where who knows how many there'll be in this one. But uh, thank you for your responses thus far, the very warm and kind responses that we've had. And uh, you can get in touch with us at NotablePod. Yeah. And we're on Instagram as well, uh, at NotablePod. Uh, you, need to, you need to tell them about Instagram. I'm, I'm not down with Instagram. <laughs> we what tried we to, to make you an influencer, Stuart, do you remember? No. At Hollingworth Lake. We posted a picture of you with an ice cream. I did and recently. And hoping to connect with the kids. I did. <laughs> that sounds funny. I did recently post a load of pictures of me walking up the Bridgewater Canal from Wigan to Lee in an attempt to become a major Instagram influencer. But I liked them all. Well, anyway, if you want to like and you want to subscribe, we are available wherever you get your podcasts from. Sorry, that was a joke. What are we going to talk about today? So today I'm going to talk about the song Scarborough Fair. And what have you got, Stuart? Uh, and I'm going to talk in a moment about Stalin. And his influence on <laughs> classical music. I know. The fun never stops here on Notable. Um, I'm going to talk about Stalin, who has, a, for a complete non-musician, although apparently he's a rather good singer, for a, for a, for a politician rather than a, a musician, he had a very profound effect on, the, on Russian music in the 20th mm-hmm. century, uh, good and ill. Uh, so we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to him in a moment. Scarborough Fair. Tell me about it. Yes, so Scarborough Fair, this is the song. What is the version that everybody knows? It's the one by Simon and Garfunkel. It is, yeah. Everyone knows this song. Everyone knows the Simon and Garfunkel version. But actually, this is a story not just about that song, but about British folk music and Mm. the folk revival in the late 50s and 60s. And it all kind of goes back to this one person, Martin Carthy, who is now considered... A giant. I mean, he's totemic of the English folk revival, isn't he? Yes. You'd almost think he was, I don't know, 
chiseled out of a cow shed in Norfolk. But actually... Well, <laughs> you could think that. <laughs> He's one of the giants, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Davy Graham, Bert Janch, Richard Thompson, Martin McCarthy. These, yeah, yeah. Yumco, these are the big guys, aren't they? Yeah. They are. He is, and you know, Martin Carthy now is married to Norma Waterson, the, the Waterson Carthy um, dynasty. dynasty. Yeah, yeah, it's a folk, folk family, isn't it? They are the they're, they're the first family of folk, the folk aristocracy, folk trocracy, if you will. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this cowshed in Norfolk, that's not where he came from. He no. actually grew up in East London. Yeah. He was inspired to take up the guitar, not because his parents were, you know, also soaked in the folk tradition not by a long way i think his parents were musicians the music played at home but he wasn't born into this folk dynasty he actually mm. was inspired to take up the guitar after he heard lonnie donegan yeah so skiffle we know the story of skiffle we know that skiffle kind of birthed rock and roll but actually what's lesser known is that skiffle was responsible in part for these, you know, giants of the folk movement as well, deciding to pick up guitars and play because Skiffle was folk right. music essentially sped up, wasn't it? And yeah, Skiffle is folk yeah. music, really. Yeah, isn't absolutely. It? Sort of p- folk Blues. punk. Yeah, folk p- exactly. Folk punk mainly about trains, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so Martin Carthy, he hears Lonnie Donegan, as many teenagers in the late fifties who heard Lonnie Donegan sing. Uh, were inspired to do he also picked up the guitar and it wasn't until he was at his friend's house his friend um i think he was called chris barker or something like that his dad said lonnie donegan is a fake he's actually just picking up these folk songs and speeding them up and that's what you're hearing you know he didn't write the songs yeah this kind of piqued martin carthy's interest and he he realized that these songs had a story to them so I mean, he must have been such an inquisitive teenager in the 50s to think, I'll try and trace the roots of these kind of traditional songs. There was a lot of it about, though, wasn't there? There was, yes. Like we Rolling Stones and people, it was really Mm -hmm. cool for amongst the cooler kids to be like, we're going to track down the original source music made by these poor black people rather than than listen to the showbiz versions, you know. Yeah, and what's like you say, you know, the Rolling Stones were tracing the roots of the blues, but Martin Carthy was doing it with English folk music. And that was something that that was also kind of, you know, there was a lot of that around at the time. That was something that was more popular at that time as well. And we were talking a little bit about this in in the Bob Dylan episode, weren't we, in series one. Mm. Um, Just how... There was this kind of appetite or a thirst for something that was a little bit more authentic at the time, something that was rootsy and that was, you know, a bit more back to basics and, like I say, had this authenticity. To track these things down, you had to, it's a proper research job, isn't it? Um, You couldn't just look it up online. So 17-year-old Martin Carthy, he started to go to Cecil Sharp House. Yeah. He tells a funny story about them sort of looking down their noses at him when he tried to go there as a teenager to look at the stuff that was in their library. Mm. Cecil Sharp House, if people don't know, it's a big folk archive centre venue, isn't it, in London? He's a whole other podcast, Cecil Sharp. It the probably man, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, he he, he has a, there's a house named after him in London, which is a venue and which hosts an archive of British folk, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's funny to think that they were looking down their noses at Martin Carthy, yeah. <laughs> who yeah. would become the, fo- yeah. what did you call it? Folk Chocasy. Folk. I think I. I think I kind of mangled it a bit first time. I said that no, he was folktocracy. Yeah. So yeah. So here's Martin Carthy, seventeen-year-old, scouring London for signs of these British folk songs, where they might have come from. Um, The Troubadour Club was where a lot of folkies were hanging around at that time. 
Yeah. He says he remembers the first time he walked down the steps, he heard bagpipes, which I think would put a lot of people off, but it made yeah, it him want to go further. And yeah, yeah. put me off. <laughs> in a small Ballad basement club? Yeah, small basement club. The, yeah. tru- the troubadour, it's in Earl's Court, isn't it? Yeah, it's not an instrument designed for a small basement club, a bagpipe. It's not, it's not really. Sorry any bagpipers <laughs> out there, but it really isn't. No, I don't mind it. I don't mind it at Edinburgh Castle. I was going to say, it's best to enjoy but, al fresco. Yeah, you know. it is, yeah. yeah. Not so much in a confined space. There was another club, Ballad and Blues. That was uh, Ewan McCall's club. Apparently, mm. Ewan McCall used to make people who performed there sing in their original accent, even though he yeah. was from Salford, but he sang in a Scottish accent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he had yeah. Scottish roots, but, you know. Yeah, so we have these... Um, I think what's interesting is you get this weird kind of intersection of these... Original folkies and these old folkies, these people who've just been singing these songs for years and years and years, and no one have really paid much attention to them. People like Sam Lana. And then all these beatniks, young beatniks come along, these young kids and 60s people who were interested in the songs all of a sudden. And some of yeah. the um, older folkies started to see a little bit of a revival as well. So yeah, so you've got this happening. I think also, like you were saying, the fact that these younger people wanted to go back and trace the roots. Lots of different versions of these songs as well. You know, there's a song, Pretty Ploughboy. I know it's a Norfolk song, but there are versions that are found all over the UK. That was common, wasn't it? And lyrics were appropriate for different places and times. Some melodies, there would be variations according to what day it was performed or, you know, different singers would have their own different version as well. So it's it's a vast thing that Martin Carthy was, was interested in taking on. We should say that he's also, I mean, he goes on to be in Steel Ice Band twice. And like you said, this is, this is early on in the 60s, before Wards and Carthy, before Steel Ice Band. At this time, Martin Carthy comes up with his own very distinctive version, his arrangement of the old folk in Scarborough Fair. He does, yeah. He's actually given the song by Ewan McCall. You know, he's got his own variation and it became his song. So all these popular folk songs would be played on the folk scene but certain folk artists would have one that was theirs and martin carthy had a scarborough fair because so, he's because the thing he brings to it which is what everybody knows is the guitar figure isn't it the it is, really yeah. distinctive bit of guitar picking if you mention scarborough fair to people it's that intro and that is entirely martin carthy's that's not an old folk tune he brings that new arrangement doesn't he yeah he does yeah and also i think we were talking about you know this design for something authentic but also in the 60s the English countryside there was you know an association with psychedelia wasn't there and yeah that idea of kind of escaping to a rural idyll and yeah but that guitar figure that he puts on that's entirely his own that's quite psychedelic that bit of picking is, in yeah. Fair is quite psychedelic so there's it, there's a nod to what is going to become happening in British pop as well yeah yeah Obviously, what's going on here is often mirrored in the States, and this is the case at this time as well. As we were saying with the Dylan episode, a lot of Americans were also on the hunt for something a bit more authentic as well. And so it makes sense, Bob Dylan wouldn't just look for that in, in the States, he came to the UK. And he became really good friends with Martin Carthy for a short time. In fact, I've been to Martin Carthy's house in Robin Hood's Bay, and there's lots of pictures of him playing with Bob Dylan at the Troubadour. Yeah. Yeah, they hung out for a little bit. The story goes that Dylan, he had the girlfriend, Susie Rotolo, who's on the front cover of Freewheeling Bob Dylan. She was Italian and she went back to Italy and he tried to go there to win her back, ended up staying in London, became friends with Martin Carthy. Martin Carthy played him Scarborough Fair 
And Dylan took the, the, you know, she was a true love of mine. The legend has it that at this time he was very heartbroken over Susie Rotolo. And that appears in his song, Girl from the North Country. It does, yeah. Which is also inspired by Scarborough Fair. So that comes out in 63. And then three years later, we hear this version of Scarborough Fair by Simon and Garfunkel. Martin Carthy's not happy about this. <laughs> Do you know about that? Yeah, we should say, presumably, Paul Simon's knocking around on the British folk scene and, know, and meets Martin Carthy, I guess, and, and hears his version, doesn't he? Yeah, Martin Carthy isn't entirely sure how he, get, how he ended up fighting right. it exactly. Because it's well known that Paul Simon was on, did the British Folk Club, so I would have thought he would, he would have bumped into Martin Carthy yeah. often. Yeah, but... yeah, it's likely. Right. There were, I mean, there were all kinds of rumours about these people as well, recording the songs in the clubs and then taking the demos back and like bootlegging them, basically. Yeah. Also, Paul Simon had signed away the rights to his publisher, so he, d- he wasn't earning any money from it. So when uh, Paul Simon and, you know, Art Garfunkel's version was so popular, he didn't make the money out of that. This is the interesting thing about it. He, for many years, Martin Carthy bore a real grudge, didn't he? Because we should say about how successful it becomes. It's on the Graduate soundtrack. Yeah, it is, yeah. It's a massive hit, but what it turns out is, if I've got this right, what it turns out is that Martin Carthy's publisher unbeknown to Martin Carthy, had signed away all the rights to it and he was getting the money. He was, yeah. We think. We're not entirely sure where all the money went. Certainly didn't go to Martin Carthy. Um, Paul Simon signed the deal on the uh, instruction that Martin Carthy got half of it, which never happened. But Paul Simon didn't get it either. Yeah. But it was this lingering open sore, really, for many years, wasn't it? Yeah, that he overcame in the end. And they did perform it together on stage, Paul Simon and Martin Carthy, years and years later, and kind of healed that wound, I suppose, eventually. Well, Martin Carthy said that he was tired of trudging through the grudge and he decided he was going (laughs) to let it go, didn't he? And, And then Paul Simon rang him up and said... Are you mad with me? And he said, yeah, I am. I've been mad all these years with this. And Paul Simon said, well, I've not made any money from this. And up till then, Martin Carthy thought that he did. And Martin Carthy said, actually realising that, provided him with a bit of closure. So at least he wasn't very angry and jealous with Paul Simon anymore. But angry with this unnamed music publisher. Because Martin Carthy, although Martin Carthy does know who it is, obviously, but that publisher is now dead. And Martin Carthy, I think, because he's a nice man, doesn't want to impugn the dead. So he very rarely brings the name up in interviews. But it turned out that neither of them made any money from it. And as Martin Cuddy said, that song must have made millions. millions. yeah. Millions and millions in DVDs, in soundtracks, in adverts. It must have made millions. And neither he or Paul Simon have seen it. But as you say, when Paul Simon played Hammersmith Apollo in 1998, he rang up Martin Carthy, didn't he, and said, let's sort of bury the hatchet live. And they played it live together. Also, Stone Roses did a version of it as well, didn't they? Elizabeth, my dear. Well, they called it Elizabeth, my dear, didn't yeah, they? The yeah. Stone Roses version. They borrowed the tune. Borrowed yeah. the tune. Sergio Mendez has done a, a you know sort of bossa nova version of it. Yeah, it, it it will have made a lot of money. A lot that of song. money. Yeah, yeah. And we don't know who. And we don't, we know, don't know who, who got to. It. Yeah. I know. I know. To return to the song itself, I think the only folk song I can think of that is as well known is Greensleeves, maybe. Um, That's interesting because it's quite a similar song, isn't it? It is very similar and very evocative of the same kind of place and ideas, I suppose. You know, very sort Uh, of British and rural, isn't it? Yes, and it has got that same modal British folk quality to it. And, of course, Henry VIII, who is supposed to have written Greensleeves, but loads of people say he didn't. So the authorship of it is in question as well. So it's kind of similar to Scarborough in that sense as well. There's been a long-running 
in inverted commas, legal disputes about the authorship of it as well. And I think you're right. The from the from the contemporary folk tradition, the British folk revival of the fifties and sixties, no other song from that, I don't think has entered the popular consciousness to the same degree. I mean, there are well-known ones like Pentangle's Light Flight and Davy Graham's Angie. That most people in the street may know the tune, but Scarborough is a proper bona fide, like massive global hit, it isn't is. it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and so popular with children, isn't it? Everyone sings that at school. Both Greensleeves and Scarborough Fair are in the Dorian mode. So interesting. Yeah, maybe it's a catchy mode. <laughs> interesting and. We should say that for our notable exception on this subject, mm. a so one-off. this is an unlikely collaboration uh, between Paul Simon and not human beings, the Muppets. He appeared on the show many times, actually. Yeah. Uh, as did Elton John, Alice Cooper, Kenny Rogers, Diana Ross, Johnny Cash, Joan Byers. But it wasn't until uh, 1980 that they decided to dedicate a whole episode of the Muppets to one artist alone, and it was... Paul Simon. It was indeed. He's the only artist of a full Muppet Show special yeah. devoted to his music. And it begins with with a sort of scene from Merry England at Scarborough Fair. It begins with that. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So... Let me tell you about Stalin, because he is a massively problematic figure. Back back in the day, uh, around about the time of the Second World War, people would have often said, oh, he was a great friend and, and hero to the Allied forces in the uh, Second World War. There was even a hit record about him by the Golden Gate Quartet called Stalin Wasn't Stalin. It was a minor hit in the USA singing his praises. But as time's gone by, we've realised just what a, well, thoroughly nasty piece of work he was. You know, his, the list of crimes against humanity that he committed to become well known. But also, he was hugely influential on the musical culture of the Soviet Union. Stalin apparently, according to Will Self and uh, Alex Ross, uh, Will Self wrote a review of Alex Ross's uh, book, The Rest Is Noise, about uh, classical music. Apparently Stalin um, had quite narrow musical taste, but quite good musical taste. He was a singer himself, and he apparently as well as frequently attending the Bolshoi Ballet and concerts in Moscow, listened to classical music on the radio, and he audited every single classical recording that came out of Russia. More about that in a moment, because he has an influence on Russian music, a lot of it quite pernicious, but he sets up the Stalin Prize, 1941, 10 categories for an individual piece of music, top prize, 100,000 rubles, which apparently at the time would have bought you six automobiles. I'm not wow. sure you could buy six automobiles in Russia at the time. 
but he was a patron we might say generously, of the arts, as well as being hugely controlling of it as well. Just very quickly going to mention three people whose music and musical careers he had a really profound influence on. Prokofiev. Hmm. He was a prodigy. He was an absolute prodigy in the academy in Moscow. And he was allowed to leave his homeland after the Russian Revolution with the Soviet Union's official blessing. Uh, which was unusual. He went to America and then Germany, then Paris. He married a Spanish singer. But beginning around 1925, the Soviet Union and Stalin start to court him. They really start to want him back. Stalin wrote in his diary, we really have to get Prokofiev back because they were beginning to realise, I think, the Soviet regime, that they needed some of their homegrown talent, some celebrities, if you will, back in the Soviet Union to say, yeah, we like it here. The revolution's going fine. We love it. And to project a new, healthier image to the world. So they courted him and courted him and courted him. And he was homesick yeah, yeah. as well, we should say. He'd had two kids who were both born in Paris. And I think he felt that he wanted to sort of reconnect with his with his homeland. So the Stalinist regime reached out to a few people. Rachmaninoff, who said no thanks. Stravinsky, who said no thanks. But Prokofiev says yes. He says that he will go back. And he made what he describes as a Faustian pact, if you like, because he knew that things were grim. He had friends in the Soviet Union who had been interrogated, had been arrested, had been tortured even for counter-revolutionary activities. He knew that he wasn't going back to a free society, but Stalin and the Stalinist regime promised him lucrative commissions, freedom of travel. They say he's going to have a nice apartment, a chauffeur, a good lifestyle. His work will always be performed. And he's, he's just getting into middle age. He needs a bit of money. He needs a bit of regular work. And he thinks, this sounds, this sounds good. And for a while... It is. All that's absolutely fine. Lieutenant Kiji was quite important, wasn't it, in that his, yes. his film score? It was around that time that he wanted to come back from Paris and that was a good way in, I think. Yeah, and when he did come back, as I said, for the first, there was a honeymoon period when things did go. Things did go well, but things kind of start to go wrong. Um, a couple of his works that he produced, a couple of ballets that he produced, people start to say um, these are contrary to the spirit of the revolution. They start to censor his work a bit. And just generally, he starts to fall out of favour. Part of this is because the bureaucracy that controlled all composers' works. Yeah. Some people felt that he was getting ideas with his station. He was quite, quite an arrogant man. And so they start to fall out of love with him in the Soviet Union. And so towards the end of his life, really, he ends up churning out what some people think is second-rate work, glorifying the, the regime and having his work heavily censored. But the ultimate irony of Prokofiev and Stalin's connection, Prokofiev dies on March the 5th, 1953, the same day as Stalin. And they die within hours of each other. But the astonishing thing is, they don't mention Prokofiev's death until Stalin's death has been announced. There were no funerals available for Prokofiev's funeral because all the funerals in Moscow had gone to Stalin. They couldn't even get his body out for three days from the Prokofiev apartment because the grief, the outpouring of grief, whether real or forced for Stalin's death, the streets are full of people. And they couldn't even get his, his coffin going to Novodevichy Cemetery. They couldn't even get that down the street because everyone's going in the opposite direction, going to Stalin's funeral. So he's overshadowed even in death, you know, by Stalin. The other, other main dude, I guess, who we think of, if I can call him main dude, Shostakovich's life is obviously, life and music is overshadowed by Stalin. Maybe the great modern 
would you would you agree maybe the great modern russian composer yeah, shostakovich absolutely yeah 100 percent. Yeah. yeah 15 symphonies 15 string quartets six concertos i think maybe the symphonies and the string quartets are what he'll be best remembered for he lived most of his life under this totalitarian regime he never he never left and he would fluctuate between being in favor and out of favor which must have been so wearing you know for him must have been such a difficult way to live he said the regime was unbelievably mean and hard every day brought more bad news and i felt so much pain i was lonely and afraid also they because they, the press would hammer their works wouldn't they as well you know it wasn't yeah. just that you were falling in and out of favor with the authorities or, or whatever it was, you know, it was the establishment as well. The, the musical establishment, establishment would right. turn against you. And then the critics would pan your, you know, the premiers of your pieces and it would be That's so, it. so completely soul destroying. And who knows who those critics were? Because the famous incident, of course, is when he's 26, he makes this avant-garde opera called Lady Macbeth of the Matensk District, which is a, a huge success. But then in 1936, Stalin comes to see it with his apparatchiks in show. And the next day, there's an editorial in Pravda that says muddle instead of music and denounces the piece. And it's widely thought Stalin wrote that. And he said things could end very badly for Shostakovich unless he switches musical gears and toes the line. And I think he does then produce another piece of work subtitled A Soviet Artist Replies to Just Criticism because he was terrified. And then he switched and started to do what a good Soviet composer is supposed to do and back up the regime. And, of course, there's the famous Leningrad Symphony. But underneath all this is terror. He's terrified. And if you want to get a good picture of that terror, there's a great book by Ian MacDonald called Testimony. And there's the Julian Barnes novel about Shostakovich's life, which show the fact that, you know, he kept a suitcase packed for his inevitable arrest. He slept on the stairwell for fear that the NKVD were going to come and find him. Also, I think it was just incredibly soul-destroying as a creative as well, wasn't it? Because it was so kind of arbitrary what the regime required in some ways. You know, obviously they liked these big kind of bombastic pieces which made Russia yeah. seem strong and that might have been influenced by the folk music of Russia and, you know, which were nationalistic in their flavour yeah. and and subjects, but also they frowned on any kind of experimentalism or independent thinking right. or, or spirit in the music, which is quite difficult to define, isn't it? So these composers yeah. at a time when things elsewhere were, you know, branching out in all different directions, sound-wise and technique-wise and in terms of form and all that sort of thing, they were being sort of funneled in this really narrow and conservative direction, which must have been well, so frustrating. Yeah, because there's this feeling that avant-garde music was bourgeois, wasn't it? Yeah. That it was a bourgeois indulgence to be avant-garde, and what you needed was songs that would inspire the workers, patriotic songs that would inspire the yeah. workers. And, and, that didn't, and that didn't allow for independent thought, really, or, or even, you know, a sonic expression of independence. It's exactly what even Cornelius Cardew, who we should do a notable on, Cornelius Cardew, the British avant-garde composer, very left-wing composer, he, even in the 1960s and 70s, does the same thing. He starts off making this incredible avant-garde music and then renounces it because he says avant-garde yeah. music is bourgeois. Doesn't he, isn't the book he writes called Stockhausen Serves Totalitarianism, where he says all that avant-garde music is propping up capitalism. What we need are catchy tunes for the workers to sing, and he switches his musical style. And some yeah. of it's terrible, and some of it's quite good. Um, these kind of pop songs he tries to write, these sort of left-wing pop songs. There's another Rush, uh, composer called Sophia Gubai Dulina who was working yes. in the um, you know, 50s and 60s as well. And they had to smuggle her manuscripts out to get them premiered elsewhere in Europe, in Vienna and yeah. Paris. 
and she's one of the, you know the foremost composers of contemporary music from yes. the Soviet regime. So absolutely, well, she's seen as that now, isn't yep. she? But again, like everybody, like Shostakovich and Prokofiev and Shostakovich and Goodbye, Delina, they all struggled at the time. Um, in 1953, as I said, Stalin dies. And you can almost feel the sense of relief in, in Shostakovich's music. He writes a dazzling piano concerto number two as a 19th birthday present yeah. for his son. And you can kind of hear in his later works like that a burden's been lifted off him and it's been full. It's full of energy and full of joy. And also the, the sarcasm and the wit that he'd been prevent, presented, uh, prevented from displaying as well. But here's an interesting last bit and a composer that we may not know. Not a composer but a musician we may not know, Maria Udina, who is Stalin's favourite pianist, studied in, in the Petrograd Conservatory with Shostakovich and devout Christian in absolute you know, defiance of the state-imposed atheism. Shostakovich said she always played as if everything was a sermon. She would read the poetry of blacklisted writers during her performances. She wore a cross. She was sometimes banned, but... Stalin loved her piano playing. Yeah. 1944, he's listening to the radio and he hears Udina play Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 23. He likes it so much, he immediately demands a copy of the performance. Of course, it's a live broadcast. There is no recording. No one dares tell Stalin this. And if you've seen the movie Death of Stalin, yeah. this incident is kind of is, is, is reenacted in the opening sequence with Paddy Considine. Yeah, yeah. And so they have to get the musicians back together they wake Udina up in the middle of the night they drive her to a studio there's a conductor and a small orchestra the conductor's so terrified he keeps screwing up they change him for another he can't handle it either a third conductor is found Udina is remaining remaining completely calm at daybreak at dawn they've managed to record it they press a single copy of it on vinyl and deliver it to Stalin <laughs> who doesn't know the difference who can't tell the difference which is absolutely amazing and um, he then sends her 20,000 rubles, which is not, not bad. And she, she says, thank you very much. She sends him a letter back saying, thank you very much for your aid. And says, I will pray for you day and night and ask the Lord to forgive your great sins yeah. before the people and the country, which is an incredible thing to say to him. And, you know, he loved her music so much. Apparently he read the letter and just put it away quietly and didn't say anything. Nine years later after this event, on his deathbed, when people entered the room, when he did die, on the turntable was a recording of Udina's that he'd been playing just before he died. Wow, I didn't know that. So you'd be tempted to say that the old terror did have a heart, but, I mean, who cares? I mean, you, whatever his love of music, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't excuse his crimes, but isn't that interesting that somewhere in that sort of black and old heart, there was enough of a love for music to, yeah. to let her criticise him like that? It's incredible. Or did, yeah, did he yeah. just admire her defiance? I don't know. I don't know. And to still to be able to enjoy the music, you know, that like you say, that that blackened heart, it still had an appreciation for this thing that is actually quite soulful and joyful. Yeah. And if you don't know the music of the people we've been talking about just now, Goodbye Delina, um, Prokofiev and Shostakovich, well, it goes without saying, have a listen to it. It's all good stuff. Absolutely. Well, that was Stalin. That was Scarborough Fair. Um... We'll have another notable podcast for you very soon. In the meantime, we should say that if you want yeah. to come and see us do this thing live, we will be uh, recording a live uh, podcast in front of an audience at the Hinterlands Festival, won't we, Elizabeth? We will. We're going on the road to Skipton for one night only. The 22nd of May, 
the Hinterlands Film Festival in Skipton. And you can get tickets at hinterlandsfestival.org.uk. I think next week we're going to talk about two quite different subjects. Aren't we going to talk about a pioneer of electronica and when the world's best nightclub was in Wigan? Yeah. Uh, Daphne Oren. And Wigan Casino mm. are the subjects of next week's Notable. Like us, subscribe us, get in touch with us at Notable Pod or on that newfangled Instagram. <laughs> See you next week. Can you hear me all right? Can yeah. you hear me? <laughs> Notable, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>